0: Where, where it's built on the principle that you are innocent until you are proving guilty. And this morning, we're actually going to be entering a courtroom. But before we do, I figured we'd have a little bit of fun because they let me up here again. And if you don't get that joke, you're my favorite. <laughs> but, um, and if something goes crazy this morning, forgive me because I'm using some new technology. Uh, I want to read something to you. To have a little fun at the beginning here, because there are certain professions that we think of that are smart people professions. And one of those happens to be a lawyer, right? If you're incredibly smart, you go into law because there's a lot of things to keep track of. Well, just for a little bit of fun this morning, I found a book um, from a, a court stenographer who was collected from other court stenographers. The funniest things that she has found actual dialogues in court. So, I'm going to read you a couple of my favorites from out of here this morning. These are all, um, these are all lawyers questioning witnesses in court. So, the, the first one here, the, the lawyer asks, Could you see him from where you were standing? To which the, the witness replies, I could see his head. And where was his head? Just above his shoulders. It's a good start. Uh, Next thing, uh, the the question comes up, Mrs. Johnson, how was your first marriage terminated? And the answer, she says, by death. The follow-up question, and by whose death was it terminated? Think about that one for a second. And finally, my favorite. This is a good one. A defense attorney was cross-examining a coroner. The attorney asks, before you signed the death certificate, had you taken the man's pulse? The coroner said no. The attorney then asked, did you listen for a heartbeat? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So when you signed the death certificate, you had not taken any steps to make sure the man was dead, had you? The coroner, now tired of the browbeating, said, well, let me put it this way. The man's brain was sitting in a jar on my desk, but for all I know, he could be out there practicing law somewhere. We're going to have a little bit of fun with that today, but we're also going to be entering a courtroom. I'm going to be putting on trial myself, and I uh, I invite you to join me in the defense stand today. But before we actually get into our text and into our sermon this morning, would you please pray with me that I don't say anything dumb? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy, so much for your grace. God, that you have blessed us in so many ways that as the world continues to fall into sin, to fall more into the devil's trap, that you would have love and mercy to save some. God, not of anything that we have done, not of anything that we have earned, but from your grace and your grace alone. As we dive into your word this morning, I pray that it would be with a spirit of humility, with a a spirit of seeking to know you and who you want us to be a little bit better. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you that you have blessed us in ways that we can never repay. God, we thank you for Christ who bore our sins in his own body. And our prayer is that we can just pour out a little bit of love back to you this morning, and it's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this series in Galatians as much as I have. I hope you've been stretched. I hope you've been challenged. I hope you've been encouraged through this continuing theme that our salvation comes by faith and faith in Christ alone. And we're going to take another look at that in a slightly different way this morning. And as I said, I'm going to be putting myself on trial as Paul has put himself on trial in this passage. And so imagine, if you will, with me, a courtroom setting because that is where we are going to find ourselves this morning. And the defense stand is going to be myself, and anybody who chooses to join me there. At the judge's seat is God the Father. The plaintiff is going to be righteousness, and the attorney will be the Apostle Paul who is writing with us this morning. So as we dive in, turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 2. It will also be up on the screen. We'll begin reading. In verse 15, we're going to rehash a couple verses that we looked at last week and continue on. Beginning in verse 15, Paul says this We ourselves are Jews by birth and not sons, um, sorry, and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What Paul does this morning is he, he sets out, again, this, this trial of my righteousness. Versus God's. And so our our plan this morning is that I'm not going to give you any flowery words, any fancy ideas, but we're going to walk straight through this text verse by verse by verse. And if this seemed a little bit heavy, like there is a lot in there, it's because there's probably about six sermons in this passage, but we're trying to get through. So read this multiple times to yourself because there is so much richness in this text. But we're going to begin just diving straight into the text today. Verses 15 and 16, Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at a, a scene where Peter was fellowshipping with Gentiles, which he was free and encouraged to do by the Holy Spirit. But yet, when other Jewish brothers came around, he recoiled, he, got, he, he drew back from those. And Paul actually confronts the Apostle Peter about this. And so, as a transition into this section... Paul says, remember, we who are writing this to you right now are Jews. We are people that have the heritage of being from the people of God. But in the very next verse, he highlights a very important point, that you cannot inherit salvation. You cannot inherit righteousness by birthright or by earning it or by anything you do. It can't be earned by obedience. It can't be given to you by heritage. Salvation comes, he says, through Christ and Christ alone. It says that no one will be justified by the works of the law. And you're going to see this word justified come up several times in the text today. So let's take just a second, and I want to highlight a difference. Um, th- there's two words that are nice, big theological terms. You've heard them a few times before. One is justification, and one is sanctification. Justification is a legal term. That's why we're hearing it a lot today. It speaks about being brought into line with the law. To be justified is to be made right. We know the word just means right, so to be justified means to be made right according to the law. And as we wrap up today, we're going to talk a little bit about sanctification. And sanctification speaks to the process of being made holy, to being set apart for a specific purpose. And so what Paul says here is that no one will be justified according to works of the law. So he's going to go and he's going to dive in and he's going to explain this a little bit. In verse 17 he says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. He asks and answers this question that's a mouthful, and if you read quickly like I do, you're like, yep, don't get it, and just keep moving on on this verse. Does anybody else do that? Let's be honest, honest time in church today. Anybody read a confusing sentence and just keep going? There's a couple. All right, good. I do it too. When we sit down and we read this passage, he asks the question, if Christ has justified us and it is now no longer based on obedience to the law, doesn't Christ then just enable me to sin? See, there's a penalty, right? There's, there's a penalty for breaking the law. And we learn elsewhere in Scripture that if you are guilty of one part of the law, you are guilty of all of it. In other words, there is one crime and there is one punishment. In our courtroom this morning, with God as the judge, with me in the defense, and with righteousness as the plaintiff, the accusation is not of any specific sin that I've done, but of committing sin. And you've heard over and over and over again a very famous passage. It's in Romans 3, 23. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Therefore, from those two passages, we can stand in our courtroom and say that every one of us who is standing in the defense is found guilty and deserving of the punishment of death. Yet we see justification. We see us being saved through faith in Christ. And so back into verse 17, Paul asks the question, if the penalty for our sin has been paid elsewhere, and my salvation is not depending on my obedience to the law, does Christ become a servant of sin? Am I able to just take advantage of what Christ did and continue on singing? Singing? Sinning. 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 He says, certainly not. I don't know why you would sing. Don't sing. Do later, but not now. He says, certainly not. That is not what Christ has done. And he's going to get into why exactly later. But what he says is this I'm going I'm to rephrase the question for you. If salvation comes through belief in Christ and obedience is not the measure, isn't Christ an enabler of sin? So righteousness is the standard, and I am found lacking. I am found guilty. That doesn't mean that Christ has made it possible for me to go on sinning. Because we're going to talk about a change that happens, a a, a very important change, and here's why. And he he goes on to explain it in verse 18. Verses 18 and 19 say this, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What Paul says is, if I am in the defense chair right now, acting as my own attorney, I have two options. Option one is to try to plead my own defense based on my own character and based on what I've done. And this is called a works-based righteousness. Righteousness. That by obedience to the law, I'm going to try to build the case that I deserve salvation. But there's a problem with this, correct? See, we have the law, we have this command that God tells us to be holy, which, if you want to explain the law, let's look at what Christ says. Someone asks, what is the greatest command? And he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, that's a heart, heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This this embodies the essence of the law right there. That in every moment we are called to love God fully. And every time that we step outside of that, we find ourselves standing in sin. It's a higher standard. See, we like to look at the Old Testament and we see these different ceremonial and dietary and and. and Cultural laws that God gave the people and we like to say I can do a pretty good job keeping those But when Christ explains the spirit of the law, we find ourselves hopelessly guilty and here's the problem Obedience to the law Can never erase a transgression of the law In other words if I walk in to the gas station down the street here And I go and steal something off the shelf I can continue not stealing for as long as I want, but I can never go back and unsteal whatever I took. Does this make sense today? I can't, I can't obey enough that what I've done in the past has gone away. It's not a percentage. If I'm 99% obedient, I am still guilty. That's what Paul is saying. So he says, if I, tore, if I rebuild what I tore down, if I go back to that old system where I say, I am going to earn my way and I'm going to obey my way into righteousness. Then I prove myself guilty. If I lay aside the grace of Christ having paid the debt for me, I prove myself guilty. To make that point, he says, For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. This is the powerful image of the gospel. This is where Paul's going to turn the corner. If we find ourselves back in the courtroom, imagine that we are in there and the electric chair sits right beside the judgment seat. The case gets made. I am found guilty. The penalty I owe is death. The judge, the righteous judge, God looks at me and he, and he says, I, I find you guilty. You have committed sin. You are condemned to die. And in that moment, he stands up and takes off his robe, and he walks, and he sits in the electric chair himself. This is the powerful picture of the gospel that the same man, or the the, the same one who is the judge over all, is also the one who has paid the penalty for all. This is the foundation for our faith in Christ. And what Paul says is I died to the law. Why? Because my penalty has already been paid. So I am going to set aside that system. Ceremonially, I am going to die. The part of me that continues to try to earn my salvation, earn my approval through obedience, has to be put to death. That part of me can no longer carry on because that penalty has already been paid. And he's going to make that conclusion here at the end of our text, so I'm not going to spoil it just yet. But here's what he says. We are guilty and the payment is death. But by dying to the law, we are enabled to live for God. Now, I want to explain for just a second, what what does it mean to die to the law? What does it mean to die to the law? I'll submit to you today that to die to the law is to acknowledge before the righteous judge that I am unable to keep the law. To die to the law in our imaginary courtroom today is to say, I plead guilty. I have sinned. I throw myself on the mercy of the court. That is what dying to the law is. It's saying, it doesn't matter how much I try to keep the law later. I have already failed. There is no defense. I have nothing. I stand empty-handed. It's a surrender of, I can't do this myself. And in that moment is when we see the power of God stepping in, taking that punishment for us. Paul begins his conclusion, says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I, that sinful self in the legal sense, am dead. That where in our little imaginary courtroom, there's an electric chair, in a very real way, Christ was nailed to a cross on my behalf. That the part of me that wants to live to earn my salvation, to earn my holiness is nailed to that cross. This is a powerful, powerful verse. In fact, our entire youth ministry is built upon this verse. I have been crucified alongside with Christ. And what does he say? It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Is that challenging for you this morning? I hope it is, because I don't know that we will ever outgrow this truth, that the life I now live is not to be my own, but the life of Christ shown in this human. The word Christian means little Christ. That is the call that we have received, and that is what Paul says is the result of our lawsuit this morning that my sinful self, that the part of me that is still under the curse of sin has been crucified alongside with Christ. I have put him to death so that the life of Christ may live in me and, ru- and flow through me. And he says, it, it doesn't just stop there, right? This is where we make that move from justification to sanctification. Now it's going to talk about holiness, Because as it turns out, the moment that you find yourself in Christ, you don't immediately get whisked away to heaven. There is still a life to live, and so Paul gives us encouragement. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our youth group is probably sick of me saying this by now, but we've given the word faith a good handy definition that we can hold on to. And faith is believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he has done. Faith is claiming the promises of God personified in the person of Jesus Christ. I live by trusting that God is who he says he is and he will do all that he says he will do. It's a constant reminder Why? Because we are in a foreign land. The moment that I crucified myself alongside with Christ, I traded an earthly citizenship for a heavenly one. And that is a powerful, powerful thing because what it means is I'm still here, but this isn't home. I need something to get me through. And and the promises of Christ, the love of Christ, are that thing that get me there. The thing that sustains us is faith in Christ. I want to challenge you today. Is that true? Is that true in your life? If you woke up tomorrow and found out that we have just discovered the bones of Jesus laying in some tomb in Israel, does your faith get shaken, or could you pretty much go on like what you did? is faith in Christ necessary this morning Paul concludes this way it do not nullify the grace of god for if righteousness were through the law then christ died for no purpose in other words paul says this i'm not going back I'm not going back to that old system. I'm not going back to those old ways of thinking. I'm not going to try to win my salvation or my standing by obedience or good works. I am all in with faith in Christ. Do you hear what he says? That, That if salvation could come by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Think back to that powerful sacrifice that the judge would take off his robe And die in my place. If I was able to earn my own salvation, that sacrifice would have been for nothing. It would have been for nothing. And this leaves us with a great big blaring question because it comes right back to verse 17 that says, So what stops me then from just going back to sin? See, when Christ took my penalty, he didn't just take my penalty for sins I'd already committed. He took my whole rap sheet. Everything that I have done, everything that I will do today, and everything that I will do for the rest of my life, Christ took that penalty for. So what stops me from going out and just doing whatever I feel like, enjoying my sin and living in it? See, there's something to obedience that changes in the last part of this passage. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. There's a purpose that we're here, and we're going to look at one last passage together this morning, and it's found in James chapter 2. You've probably read it before. It's again up on the screen here. We're going to begin in James chapter 2 and verse 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of, uh, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And here it is, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith, absent of the display of a change in you, is unable to save you. It is not faith in Christ. You see, there's a very important thing that we have to learn from Scripture. Scripture. I think Paul says it the most clearly in the book of 2 Corinthians when he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. The old is gone and the new has come. See, obedience changes its form and it changes its function when we step into faith in Christ. When we acknowledge our guilt, when we throw ourselves on the mercy of the judge, obedience is now no longer a means to gain God's approval. It's no longer a means to gain status or standing with God or with other people. Obedience now becomes an outward reflection of an inner change. Obedience becomes the outward reflection of an inner change. Think about it in terms of the actual court system that we have here on earth today. If I get pulled over for speeding and the officer looks at me and he says, you are guilty, you are doing 15 miles over the speed limit, but I'm going to let you off with a warning. He has given me grace That should change something in me. How many of you, if that happens, are going to pull away and immediately go back to speeding? Don't answer that. Some of you probably would. You see, if we are in Christ, if we are remade, then we are changed. Salvation isn't about agreeing with a concept. It's not about obeying the rules. It's about being remade. One of the powerful passages about this, Jesus meets with a man named Nicodemus and he says that if you are not born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That is what our salvation is. That is our justification. It's dying to the old self and becoming the new self. It's gaining a new nature. It's putting on Christ, and our obedience is now no longer a means of trying to earn anything, but it's a display of what has been done for you. It's an outpouring of love. Church, I don't know where you are today. You could be in a place where you are recognizing your own guilt and stressing over the fact that you can't pay back the debt. If that's you today, I want to encourage you. The debt is not yours to pay. That the judge is standing there waiting and willing to offer you the clean slate based on the payment that has already been made. Church, if that's you today, if you if you've never said that I I want to be I want to throw myself on the mercy of the judge. I encourage you, don't let this day pass without taking that step. You might be in a different place. You might be someone that has said, I, I've made that step. I've found myself in Christ. I have been changed. But there's that one thing in my life, whether it's pride, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, that thing that you continue to hold on to and struggle, and struggle. And if you're anything like me, every time you fail, you feel worthless. You feel like you've just dragged God's name through the mud in such a way that how could he possibly look at me as a worthy son? Church, if that's you today, I want to encourage you to die to the law my justification is not contingent upon my obedience and we have such a strong temptation in our pride and in our desire to earn something for ourselves to prove ourselves victory over sin comes when we when we acknowledge that we can't beat it ourselves If you find yourself in that place today, I encourage you to pray over and over and over again, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Today you might be in a place where you you feel like you've acknowledged your debt, where your sins have been paid for, where you're living in the mercy of God, but you don't quite understand how to live out that call. That works seem so empty, and I want to encourage you to take a look at who Christ says you are. That, that obedience, that good works, that doing what you know God wants you to do is not a burden to you, but it, but it can be an outpouring of an inward change. If that's you today, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to leave knowing that God has made you new. And every time we step out in obedience, we are proclaiming the name of the Lord because outside of him, we cannot do it. Wherever you are today, I want to leave you with a passage. It's also out of 2 Corinthians. Whether you're someone who has never acknowledged Christ as Lord, whether you're someone who is struggling to die to the law, to die to your sin, or whether you are someone who is working on figuring out how this whole obedience thing works, here is what God says to us. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Church, will you grab onto that today? That completely outside of my works, completely outside of my obedience, in Christ and in Christ alone, I am declared a part of the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, I try so often to look good, to please you based on what I can do, what I can prove. God, strip pride from me so that I might be able to stand in the power of Christ. God, that I might recognize daily what it means to have my debt paid, to wash myself in the blood of Christ. God, allow us to stand in your grace, to see obedience not as a measure of my goodness, but as a declaration of yours. Move in us this morning. Don't allow us to walk out of here with a good idea that never grows feet. Father, you are holy and you have loved us when we were hating you. Reach into our lives today, move us, and it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. We have an opportunity this morning to respond with communion, so I want to invite those who have volunteered to serve to help us out with communion to come either to the front or to the back. What we do this morning is a symbol. And I want to encourage you to think deeply about what this means. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us. It's that sacrifice that we spoke about just a few moments ago that in his broken body I find my justification. This is a celebration of that. That the cup represents the blood of Christ, which is a new covenant. A new covenant, which God gives us His promise. That in that cup, we might be able to stand and say that the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I encourage you this morning, if you haven't taken that step to put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, make that step today. But don't take this symbol lightly. Scripture gives us a very somber warning that those who eat this bread or drink this cup in an unworthy manner eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So I implore you today, examine your heart. Examine your heart. If there's someone in this room that you need to get right with before you come up, do it. If there is something on your heart, if you need to to kneel at one of these altars to pray at your seat and say, God, cleanse me of this, I've been holding on to it, do it before you come forward. And when you do, come in a heart of gratitude, of celebration, because Christ has won the victory. I invite you at this time to take that step. Take a couple minutes to pray and then come enjoy communion with us.